Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, everyone. Just before we get this next history hack out and going... Just reminded to say that we are on Patreon. If you head to patreon.com forward slash history hack, you can see all the amazing tiers that start from just £3 a month. But we know that supporting a pod that you might not listen to all of the episodes on, for shame, you may want to just tip us for an episode. So we have signed up with Ko-Fi. So if you go to ko-fi.com forward slash history hack, you can tip us for an episode that you've listened to and quite liked. So whichever way you're able to support us, whether that's just sharing the pod with your friends or being able to support us financially, we cannot thank you enough. So without further ado. 30th of May, 1431, Rouen, France. It's no easy thing to watch a woman burn. A young woman who has seen only three more summers than yourself and claims the voice of God compels her actions. But there it is, the day's work, and she must harden herself to it. So, on a May morning so fine, its early sun has already chased Ruan's street dogs into shadows, Cecily has put on black velvet, sombre and rich. She has bound a rosary, at her waist, a reminder to the French that God has answered the prayers of the English and delivered Joan of Arc into their hands, a reminder to her king that her loyalty is to him and to heaven. She waits now in the market square, her face to the pyre and sullen French anger at her back, for the signal that will tell her Joan is coming out to die. She raises her head when it comes, a trumpet call, high and vicious, and beneath it the crowd's murmur growing to a roar. Beside her, her husband Richard straightens his back, squares his feet. She swallows bile and does the same. The sun is hot enough, but that's nothing, she thinks, to the blaze to come. Have courage, her mother would say. Faith and courage can accomplish anything. Cecily wonders if John's mother told her the same, likely someone did. In her glory days, Joan put on armour and rode at the head of armies. 
With words alone she roused a fearful king and turned the tide of a war. Imagine. Now the tide runs all against her and she must find only the courage to die. Though John is England's enemy, Cecily wishes courage for her now. Soon the ring of metalled feet overwhelms the clarion and the crowd parts for a wagon, its blade bristling guard and the prisoner bound upon it. It's the first time she's seen John and isn't sure what to expect. Just a pale, thin girl, it seems, head shorn and bloodied. It doesn't look like there's much fight left in her. The bright armour of John's soldiering days is long gone, and today's thin shift, with the filth of a prison year upon it, is scant covering for a body that, some say, English soldiers have been allowed their way with. Though Richard says, surely not. Cecily can believe it. The king's uncles have long wanted John dead, but they wanted her shamed first. Cecily sees John stumble as she's pulled from the wagon and thinks for a moment she will fall and knock herself senseless, and what then? But the guards press in to hold John upright, her body crushed between their bulk as they jostle towards the pyre, her arms pinioned behind her, her small breasts jutting. The desperate parade passes close enough that Cecily can see John's eyes. One is closed by livid bruises, the other, white-rimmed and wide, is fixed on the crucifix borne high above her by a priest, leading the way to death and whatever might lie beyond that. John's lips are moving, and Cecily recognises the words of the Ave falling, stuttering and fast. She wonders what she prays for. Rescue? Or just an end to this? I would pray for the death of every Englishman here, Cecily thinks. Then suddenly she is afraid, for no one can fathom the power of Joan's prayers, and Richard stands beside her, who has seen Joan tried and nodded his head at her sentence. Her breath catches, and she pants once, and he's holding out a hand to steady her. She raises a palm, shakes her head to signal no, then makes a fist to hide her fingers trembling. He draws back, and she feels his gaze follow hers to where the guards are handing Joan into the reaching arms of men who wait to receive her. They draw her up, bare legs flailing, then bind her and bring more wood so that she stands deep among a thicket of staves. She can no longer hear Joan's prayers, so out of pity and to guard her own soul, She speaks them with her as the men clamber down and reach for their torches. At last the fire is set and the flames lick like dogs at John's feet and thighs. Cecily feels their growing heat against her own cheek as John's voice, steady at the last, rings out above her head. All I have done was by God's order. And urgent as the priest's arms falter and his burden dips, hold up the cross of Christ that I may see it as I die. 
Cecily narrows her eyes against livid sparks as Joan's prayers give way to hacking coughs and shrieks and sudden silence. She sets herself to watch as flesh burns, blossoms and falls away. There's grit in her eyes. Sweat runs the cleft of her shoulder blades and beneath her clasped hands, her stomach shrivels. But she won't flinch. This is a test. And so our story begins. Hello and welcome to History Hack. We've got a fascinating woman to discuss and I have two wonderful women with me here today. So I shall hand over to Charlotte White to introduce our guest. Thank you, Matt. Annie Garthwaite is the author of Cecily, a rip-roaring assault on the senses in historical novel form, as you've just heard. It documents the eventful life of Cecily Neville, a protagonist who, though she may have been forgotten to popular literature, was certainly never forgotten to our brilliant history-loving listeners. She's here today to drag you kicking and screaming into the Wars of the Roses. Hello, Annie. Oh, hello, Charlotte. It's lovely to be here. Hi, Matt. That was just the most incredible way to kick off our podcast and our discussion of Cecily. Who was Cecily Neville? What do we know about her? Well, I'm sure I don't need to tell your listeners that Cecily Neville was the matriarch of the House of York during the Wars of the Roses in the 15th century. But one of the first things to think about when we think about Cecily is the length of her life. So Cecily was born in 1415, the year of Agincourt and once more into the breach and all of that. And she lived right through to 1495, so into the first decade of the Tudor dynasty. So she lived right through the, the dog days of the French wars and then through civil war in her own country. And for that 80-year period, she was one of the most, if not the most, powerful and influential women in England, second only to queens. So you might think it's odd that she's been so neglected by historians and by, and by novelists too. There's, while there's been a lot of fiction written about some of her contemporaries like Margaret Vaudreau or Margaret Beaufort or Elizabeth Woodville, there hasn't been that much written about, about Cecily. But she was... A staggering survivor, if you think of the Wars of the Roses, she was the only major protagonist of the wars to live through them right from the very beginning to the very end. And throughout that time, she was always close to the heart of power and political decision-making. And she was an absolute force of nature and a force to be reckoned with in court. I've always been fascinated by her because she's always seemed someone who's should be more front and center in our stories than she should be because we do kind of get a little bit distracted by her husband Richard Duke of York who was he and what was his claim to the throne because it's an interesting tangled web yes it is a very very tangled web let me first of all talk about the the marriage between Cecily and Richard and how that came about and why that marriage was made, because that puts it in context. So Richard was married to Cecily when Cecily was eight years old, not unusual at all in those times. And it was the last of a series of absolutely dazzling marriages 
that Cecily's parents made for their children. And they typically made these marriages, by, particularly for their daughters, by taking on the wardship of young noblemen who'd been orphaned in the wars and had rich titles in their pockets. So they would buy their wardship, marry them to their daughters, and by doing that, bring those lands and titles and what have you into their family. And that was certainly the case with Richard. So Richard was the the son of Richard, Earl of Cambridge, who was executed in 1415 for rebellion against Henry V. Not a very clever move, rebelling against one of England's most popular kings, but there we are. So when Ralph took on Richard's wardship, he had the Earldom of Cambridge and the Dukedom of York in his pocket. Not bad. Very good. But you might think that's a dazzling marriage, and it certainly was. But it was in some ways a gamble, because Richard was the son of a traitor, and there was a shadow over his head. And he would not accede to those titles when he came of age, unless he managed to win the confidence of the young king, Henry VI, and his uncles. Which is why I talk about the burning of Joan of Arc being a test for Cecily and Richard, because they have to be able to show that they're good Lancastrians and they can watch England's enemies be destroyed without faltering or flinching. They're in the business of proving their loyalty. Now, two years after Cecily was married to Richard, so by this time she's about 10, things for Richard get even better, but at the same time, even worse. He, his maternal uncle, dies childless, which leaves him heir to the vast Mortimer estates with huge tracts of land in Wales and Ireland and so on, and phenomenal wealth. But it also makes him inherited to a claim to the throne, which is arguably better than the chap who's sitting on the throne at the moment. So right from the get-go in this relationship, It's a bit of a double-edged sword. Richard is extremely wealthy, potentially extremely powerful, but he is hugely under suspicion by the Lancastrian court and then later by the Beauforts and the factions that that focus around Henry VI's rather weak and unstable kingship. Um, Yes, so do you want me to tell you a little bit about Richard's claim to the throne and how it comes about? Because it is very complicated. (laughs) And just just to say, if anyone thinks that that little bit of story is familiar, that's the beginning of Act Two of Henry V. So that's probably where you know Richard's dad from. Not that he makes much of an appearance, but he's rather important to the plot of the play. The, The trick is to this claim to the throne is that Henry VI, who's sitting on the throne at the moment, is descended from the third son of Edward III. Very good. Richard is descended from both the second son of Edward III and the fourth son of Edward III. So Edward III's second son was Lionel, Duke of Clarence, whose daughter Philippa married into the Mortimer family, and Anne Mortimer was Richard's mother. So direct line of descent through the female line there. Edmund, Duke of York, who was Edward III's fourth son, was Richard's grandfather. So 
This is a very real and solid claim to the throne, and it was one that the Lancastrians were, you know, throughout the reign of Henry IV and Henry V and subsequently Henry VI, very, very nervous of. So when you combine the fact that Richard is a proven traitor's son, you know, and and his father was executed because he instigated a rebellion that was attempting to put his brother-in-law on the throne, <laughs> you know, you can see the huge shadow, the huge millstone of suspicion that Richard had to carry throughout his life and the huge danger that that claim to the throne put upon him. Now, it's my firm belief that Richard, Duke of York, had no wish at all to rebel against the king. You know, he was brought into Cecily's parents' household and they were good Lancastrians. And he was about 12. What age was he when he was brought So he was very young when his father died. He was about yeah. four or five. And so he spent those few years in between of, you know, buffeted about in the world, not much wanted, not much love. And you can imagine that suddenly he found himself in Raby Castle in this dynastic household where he seemed to have a place. And Ralph's business was to make a good king's man of him and marry him to his daughter. And he, and my feeling is that he latched onto that feeling of security and that really all Richard wanted all his life was a good king that he could be loyal to and serve. And if Henry VI had been that good king, he'd have been a happy man and probably died in his bed. But unfortunately, <laughs> that was not what fate had in store for him. Gosh, I mean, it's not a spoiler to say that there are conversations in Cecily, between Cecily and her husband, Richard, where she questions her father's wisdom in some of the advice that he gave to Richard when he was younger. But he's having none of it. He loved that man and really really mm. respected him and, and the teachings he was given. Yeah. And I think that was the, that that was the tension, I think, because if you think of Cecily, her father, Ralph Earl of Westmoreland, was one of the first nobles to declare for Henry the Henry Bolingbroke, Henry the Fourth, when he took the throne from the weak, vacillating King Richard the Second. So that sort of idea of a strong noble strong noble with a good claim replacing a weak and ineffectual, unjust king was kind of the foundation stone, foundation story of Cecily's house. So you can imagine when things are beginning to, you know, when, when it becomes evident that Henry VI is not a good king and that Richard is under threat, Cecily's going to be standing there saying, you know, Richard, <laughs> what are you going to do here? You know, it would have been very clear to her that he had a claim and, and a duty to put things right. And on the opposite side, there's Richard going, but I don't want to be a traitor. <laughs> I need to be a good man. And that's the sort of dramatic tension in the book and the dramatic tension in their relationship, I think. It's wonderfully done. So the reigning monarch at the time you've mentioned is Henry VI. Yes. What, what is the relationship like between the king and the House of York, mm. how, and how does that? How does it develop and change? Mm. Well, of course, the first thing to remember is, as I've described, the importance of the relationship between Cecily's family and Henry VI. So, her family, a family Lancastrian, helped put the Lancastrians on the throne, all of that good, good stuff. And Richard goes out of his way to prove his loyalty to the Lancastrians, shaped by his relationship with Cecily's father. I think 
But the shadow of Richard's claim to the throne hangs over the whole relationship. And whilst Henry VI clearly has some affection for Richard, thinks of him as his cousin, thinks of him as one of the old established blood, Richard becomes an easy victim for the powerful factions that want to hold on to power around in the sort of vacuum of leadership that comes with Henry VI kingship. And of course, the more children and the more sons Richard and Cecily managed to produce, the more of a threat he becomes to the childless Henry VI. So the stark contrast between the two men becomes more and more obvious as time progresses. You know, you have the weak, vacillating, easily led kingship of Henry VI, childless, and you have Richard, Duke of York, proven military and political leader with a bevy of children. Who do you think looks like the most likely king? <laughs> the, the thing that I always love about this period is this is the son of the great battle king. In the eyes of the, ah. the nobles, he is the direct descendant of the Black Prince. This, he's the one who has won France. And there's this very unfortunate boy that is now yeah. in charge. I think Henry VI's story is a tragedy because he came to the throne at six months old. He was under the power and control, really, of his father's brothers, his uncles. And it was really in nobody's best interests for Henry VI to grow up and take power. So I do wonder what his childhood was like and whether those people who were responsible for his upbringing were more concerned with making a good king of him or more concerned with making hay while the sun shines you know, and controlling a young king. So how well he was prepared for kingship. He had no role model because his father had been dead so long. All he had was this myth, this enigmatic myth behind him of this great warrior king. And that's an interesting question because you can ask what makes a good king? And it seems to be that at this time, the perception of a good king is not maintaining peace, it's maintaining France. It's it's going to war with the French, it's taking back land that, that belongs yeah. to the throne. And the fact that Henry VI is not particularly interested in war or he just seems he gets portrayed as being weak because he wasn't a warrior. He's also, he vacillates. You know, I, I sometimes say in the novel, you know, that Henry VI's opinion is the, the opinion of the man that's speaking, that last spoke to him or that is standing closest ah, to him right now. That's interesting. <laughs> he's, he's so easily led because on the one hand, he's quite happy to send John Beaufort rampaging through France in a very warlike manner, while at the same time, he's got Richard Duke of York stationed in Rouen trying to make peace. So he must have been the most infuriating man to try and serve because you never know what he wants because what he wants is what the last guy told him (laughs) or what god tells him or what god tells him and that's the yeah the great imponderable who knows what god was saying to him yeah (laughs) you've mentioned them so we need to bring them into our discussion that's the beaufort family this is the possibly the biggest fight between cousins in history really isn't it because you can say that the War of the Roses is very much probably more York and Beaufort than it is York and Lancaster. So 
Who are these imposters and how did they affect Cecily's life? That's an interesting choice of words, isn't it? (laughs) Very loaded. (laughs) In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. So who were the Beauforts? Well, they were the illegitimate descendants of John of Gaunt, Edward III's third son, and Catherine Swinford, his long-term mistress, who eventually, long after the birth of their children, became his wife. So suddenly this bunch of kids who'd been born illegitimate were the children of a powerful duke and made legitimate. So they were legitimised by the Pope on God's side and by Richard II on the state's side, if you like. All good. So that meant that those children could then acquire land, acquire titles and so on and so forth, all of those things that that bastards could not do. And Cecily's mother, Joan, was one of those children of John of Gaunt and Catherine Swinford. So she's a Beaufort too, absolutely. And Cecily Neville has Beaufort blood running through her veins. Now, when Richard II legitimised them, but then Henry IV added a codicil to that legitimization, which meant they could, the Beauforts could inherit whatever they like, hold whatever station and position they merited and earned and were granted, except the royal dignity. So they were excluded from the succession. They could not accede to the, to the throne, because arguably they had a very strong claim, direct descendants of Edward III and so on and so on and so forth. But they were effectively cut out. But this is a real powerful family and very acquisitive and ambitious. And Cecily is a Beaufort and she is right at the heart of this huge family squabble. And it costs her dear. I mean, honest to God, never go to a wedding where the groom is a Beaufort and the and the, the bride is a Neville, because there will be a brawl before you get to this. <laughs> Just don't go. This is the biggest family fight in the history of the world, I think. You know, so when, when Cecily is fighting the Wars of the Roses, she's fighting her sisters and her brothers and her cousins and so on. And it is as much uh, Neville Beaufort as it is Lancaster. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. 
Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Doc. Gosh, I mean, this is the stuff that was pinched by Game of Thrones. It's all it's all there, these, these warring yeah. families and factions and all after the same throne. Yeah, um, it couldn't be more dramatic, could it? It really right. couldn't be more dramatic. I mean, when you think the sister that was closest to Cecily in age and probably in terms of intimacy, mm-hmm. Anne, and she was married to Humphrey, Duke of Buckingham. And Humphrey is killed when fighting... Cecily's brother and son. And Cecily at the time is with Anne. She's under house arrest in Anne's household. So you can imagine when the messenger turns up to say, hey, news, it comes that close and tears that deeply into the heart of these familial relationships. I can't imagine what that would be like for two sisters to try and reconcile that. Well, you you have imagined it and you've imagined it really well. And that's one of the brilliant functions of historical fiction away from just writing a biography is that you you put yourself in that room and it it does bring home like you say that this wasn't you know this wasn't armies fighting each other who are from different countries these are these are relatives yes yeah it's a family and a nation just tearing itself apart it really is brutal you write really really beautifully about Cecily's experience of having a family which is of course important dynastically and Mm. to her as a woman how hard was it for you to research the number of children and the births that Cecily had and how much is known about her attitude towards motherhood Mm. it's interesting isn't it because she she marries Richard when she's eight but they don't begin their married life together properly until she's about 15. And that's and I, standard. For yeah, them. that was pretty typical. The 15, 16, you would get on with it. <laughs> um, and then the first jaunt together, if you like, was that trip to France, um, ostensibly to see Henry IV crowned as King of France, but at the same time, the execution of John of Arc occurred. So 15 But she does not deliver a living child until she's 23. So it takes her eight years to deliver a living child. And we don't really know why or what happened in that period of time. Um, I don't think it was for one to try, because it seems to me that their relationship was a very close one. They travelled together whenever they could. They spent time together. So whether there were miscarriages in that time, we don't really know. And you can imagine the pressure that would have been on Cecily in that eight-year period because, hey, medieval women of of Cecily's status were expected to do a lot. But the one thing they were absolutely expected to do was to breed. And if you didn't manage that, nothing else much counted for anything. So you can imagine the pressure she'd be under. You know, people would be looking at her waistline, looking at their watches, trying to work out what she was going to deliver. And I think it's testament to the strength of the marriage between Cecily and Richard that he did not put her aside after that eight-year childless period, as many men might have. He he stuck with it. Um, 
And she finally has a child when she's 23, and that's her first daughter, Anne. She goes on to have 12 children in total, five of whom she loses in infancy, which again is very sadly typical of the times. And you're pretty much expected to have your children and then crack on and have the next one and the next and the next and the next because children die and you need a succession. Immediately after Anne, she had a son, Henry, who died within days of his birth, it seems, and then went on to have Edward. But once she got into her stride, there was no stopping her. (laughs) For a period of her life, she was almost consistently pregnant. I think of Cecily... As as a as the product of Ralph and Joan, her parents. Now they were hugely dynastic. You know, they made this series of dazzling marriages for their children. So she would have been brought up with this idea: that you have children to build a dynasty. Mm. You make you make great children, and you marry them into powerful houses, and you extend your affinity and your network by those means. So she would have seen her children as assets in the bank. And I know that sounds quite brutal, but I think there's part of Cecily that would have seen her children as that. You know, their assets in her bank, their coins in her purse. She has to spend them very wisely. But I don't doubt, too, that there was huge affection in her and her children, but not in any soppy or romantic way. I think hers was quite a tough love. I do get a really strong sense of Edward being a favourite, and that might just be because... He's her first surviving son, you know. He's also the golden boy, isn't he? All of legendary, six foot four, looks like a god, all that sort of thing. And I think there is a strong sense of her favouring him over others. And I think an example of that is when everything's gone to hell in the handcart and Cecily is under pressure and Edward is desperately trying to fight his way out of Wales. Cecily is stuck in London with Marguerite's army at the door she sends her two younger sons, Richard and George, out of the country to Burgundy. But she does not go with them. She stays to hold the fort for Edward, and I think that's very telling, because you might think that a mother would go with her two very young boys. But no, she sent them into a very, you know, a terrifying journey to a very uncertain welcome in Burgundy. No certainty of what was going to happen to those boys at all, but she waved them goodbye without a look back and held on for Edward. So that gives me a strong sense of favouritism for her. And then I think her relationship with Anne, her eldest daughter, is very telling too. Because, you know, if, if we think about those dynastic marriages again, she made a marriage for Anne with Henry Holland, who was heir to the Dukedom of Exeter at the time. And by all accounts, that was not a happy marriage. And, you know, he was something of a a brute, it seems, and had a fairly unhappy time. So marrying a daughter to a man who you already suspect is not going to be a caring husband, when the little girl is eight or so, similar age to Cecily was when she married, that's tough. But then subsequently... Henry Holland always fights on the Lancastrian side. So once Edward IV becomes king, Mm. Henry's attainted and all his lands and titles and so on become the property of the crown. Anne separates from her husband, Henry Holland, at this point, with her mother's blessing. And Cecily herself steps in to make sure that many of Henry Holland's lands and titles are 
granted directly to Anne. So that effectively, she's making Anne financially and physically independent. Do you think that could have worked the other way as well for her? Do you think she was pulling a Stanley and she was thinking, well, you know, if, if, if everything goes wrong here, my daughter will be married to someone loyal to Lancaster. So she'll be safe and she can advocate on the part of, of the rest of us and maybe, maybe save I, lives. I don't think at the time that she made the marriage that was in her head because the marriage was made long before things had accelerated to that point where it was obvious that, 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 that things were going to come to blows. There is a scene in the novel towards the end urges Anne to go back to her husband because she's the only one who has in her family that at that point who have a friend in the king. Mm. You know, it's very difficult, isn't it? But I think that's such a good example of Cecily's pragmatic love and care for her children. You know, it's not it's not all lovely mummy, but it's very <laughs> practical and pragmatic. Yeah. <laughs> We're going to bring another family in now. One whose very name... <laughs> gets my hackles up because i do not like this lot in your book you've got this fantastic interaction and and relationship between jacessa woodville and and cecily another woman who was producing a family that was going to be put into places much as as cecily was doing so there's a lot of a lot of a kindred spirit between these two how did you decide that these women were going to interact in, in your book what do we know about the, the women in this period? Because mm. we know some of them by name, mm. and that's usually mm. about it. I think there, there, there is genuinely a great female networking activity going on in this period that has been largely ignored because it's not about men, right? It's about women. <laughs> so who cares? But it's very real and it's very powerful. And women talked to each other and women got things done together, just as they do now. It's not, nothing much has changed. So there's very strong affinities between these women. When Richard has fallen out seriously with the king, Cecily is still writing to Marguerite of Anjou trying to bring her husband back into favour. She's still keeping that sort of networking going, and she does that very successfully. I think her relationship with Jaquetta is really interesting, and I love it. I really enjoy writing that relationship. <laughs> because Cecily at one point describes Jaquetta as a whetstone for her wit, and she's the kind of friend who you like against your better judgment, but you find alternately lovable but really irritating and who you you kind of like but you rather disapprove of <laughs> we've all got one Keta. and and I think she sees Chiquetta as a bit of a mover and a bit of a manipulator but then Cecily is absolutely that too I think she disparages Chiquetta's marriage to the golden Woodville because she sees it as a very unequal marriage, a woman marrying beneath her station. But in fact, often rich and wealthy widows did marry men who were slightly below their own status. And it was a very deliberate act. They did it because that man would be easier to control and easier to influence. Subsequently, of course, Edward IV marries Jaquetta's daughter, Elizabeth Woodville, doesn't he? And and I don't entirely buy this argument that people often have, which is that Cecily hated Elizabeth Woodville. There really just isn't the evidence for it. I think when that marriage took place, Cecily was probably bloody furious. 
for two reasons. A, because it is absolutely knowledge that she would have made. She would wanted a big, powerful, dynastic marriage for Edward that would strengthen the throne and, and all of that good stuff. She'd been brought up well by her parents. She knew what a good marriage looked like, and that's what she wanted for Edward. And it certainly wasn't Elizabeth Woodville, a Lancastrian widow of, you know, with two sons already. But most of all, I think Cecily would be furious because the one thing Cecily always wants to be is in control. So the fact that Edward went off and secretly married Elizabeth without telling her, I bet he got the biggest clip round the ear that he's ever had <laughs> for that one, don't you think? But the evidence is after she had her great big fury at him, she came to terms with it and she buckled up. And I think that's exactly what she would do because ultimately what Cecily is interested in doing is strengthening and stabilising the regime at that point. Mm-hmm. So the last thing she wants to do is pick a fight with this woman who, for good or ill, is Edward IV's wife and queen. So I think they patched it up. Especially once she starts giving him children. Especially once she starts giving him sons. Yes. Yeah. I've often thought that's probably the one time Edward was actually scared in his life. The, the, the great warrior having to sneak into his mum to say, oh, by the way, I got this. <laughs> Can you imagine? Oh, I'd rather fight Mortimer's Cross all over again. <laughs> I hope yes. you'll carry Cecily's story <laughs> forward to this because that is a that's a room I want to be in. I want to be there when um, when he comes home. This big strapping, like you say, six foot four, blonde, charming, just wonderful. Adonis of a man. Adonis, yeah, legendary swordsman. Not not the swordsman you're thinking. And he yeah, comes and tells his mum he's made this marriage. I just think it'd be absolutely fantastic. I'm working on it. <laughs> yes, okay. If you want a beta reader, you've got you got (laughs) that does bring us on quite neatly to our our next question. Cecily is the result of many, many years of thought. Could you tell us about the journey from obsession to print? Though it's the most basic question we're ever going to ask you, passion to tell a story, who might be listening today. Do you have any advice for any aspiring historical novelists with a similar passion to tell a story who might be listening today well i'll answer your last question first (laughs) what would my advice be to aspiring historical fiction writers forget the history focus on the people if readers only want the history they can go and read history books fiction gives us the opportunity to get personal when i wrote cecily I wanted to write a character study of this woman. I wanted to get inside her skin and walk around in it and be her for a while and imagine what her life was like as as a pre-Reformation, pre-feminist, 15th century matriarch. I wanted to understand what that was like. The context for all of that is the French Wars and the Wars of the Roses and the court of Henry VI and all of that, but it's the secondary concern. So anyone who's writing historical fiction, find the person or the people that you want to deal with and focus on them. That's amazing. So how long has this been bubbling away inside your head to tell everybody about Cecily? Forever. It started in school. I went to a very, very ordinary comprehensive school in the northeast of England, which was not terribly academic and not very prestigious at all. 
But I was blessed in one respect. I had an absolutely fabulous and slightly eccentric history teacher called Keith Hill. And he just taught history. He taught It was Wars of the Roses, you know, for all level or whatever. And he just told history like it was still happening, that these events took place yesterday. And he'd ask you the, the people-related questions. So he'd say things like, so what do you think he was thinking when they did that? Or why do you think she did this? And so you were forced always to put yourself in the head of the people. Fascinating, wonderful. So I came out of it with a not terribly great A-level, but <laughs> really strong on character motivation. But he'd have latched on to me because I was, I was fascinated by the subject and he could see that, I think. And he just, you know, most of his other pupils were asleep. And he just kept lobbing books across the desk at me and uh, novels as well. And that's always been my way into history through fiction. Started with my mum. And one of the books he threw at me was We Speak No Treason by Rosemary Holly Jarman, which is a very romantic book about Richard III. If you haven't read it, I recommend it. (laughs) All all but good. And I fell passionately in love with Richard III. He was my big teenage crush. (laughs) And it's a serious intellectual pursuit now, of course, but, you know. I've I've always been fascinated by Richard, but then as I got into my 20s and certainly into my 30s, I became much more interested in the women around Richard because they're just huge, towering women. But Cecily was hard to grasp. And, you know, for For that, I partly blame Shakespeare, because in the history plays, she's old, she's pious, she's dull, she has nothing, she has no political power, nobody's listening to her. She just wanders around a lot complaining about her son. And, you know, she's dull, frankly. And I think that characterisation stuck, but the reality is the complete opposite, of course. So I'd always had this idea that I would write a novel But the idea at first, when I was in my teens, was that it would be about Richard III. As I got into my 20s and 30s, it was very clear to me it would be about Cecily. And my intention was to get a job in publishing and write alongside. But that just didn't work because publishing paid about threepence a year at the time. I was was working in bars and bookshops just to live. There was no time to write. So I made a pact with the devil that I would go into the where I could make sensible money but that I would stop work at 55 and write this book. So in 2017, I was 55, so I stopped work and I wrote the book. It was a bit of a long-term plan. So you know, genuinely say I've been researching this book for 40-odd years, because I have. <laughs> it's wonderful. It's absolutely incredible. I owe a lot to that history teacher. A great teacher stays with you, doesn't yeah. they? Yeah, I am a huge debt. Teachers are so powerful. They can change your life for the better or for the worse and have to empower those people. Not wanting to bring this too back to pop culture. (laughs) Whenever I read Shakespeare now and Cecily pops up, I see Diana Rigg. (laughs) Basically from Ariana (laughs) Tour in Game of Thrones because I remember watching that and going, that's who I imagined Cecily would be, this incredibly powerful older woman who people don't suspect and yet is pulling every string that you can possibly yeah. imagine. Yeah. And if no one's heard of Cecily Neville before, think that and you've got your way in. Yeah, definitely. To a future book, because we don't get that far in, in this one, do we? We don't. We don't. This no. is this is not how, wanting to spoil it. <laughs> well, this is how Cecily becomes Cecily. It's how she becomes mm. the woman that will have that kind of strength 
and she has to grow from being a young woman at the beginning of the book to being the mother of all these incredible children who are going to be a big part of our country. You know, what a bunch of kids to parent, right? (laughs) I've always thought if they could have played a bit nicely together, I was sort of Georgia Clarence could have played a bit nicer. Yes. Maybe things would have been... He's that difficult middle child, isn't he? He's yes. not the middle child, but he's the middle son, isn't he? Yes. You've got Edward, the golden boy. You've got Richard, who I think is the son most like Cecily's husband, most like his father. I don't know if you've read any of Matt Lewis's work on Richard III, his excellent biography of him. But, you know, there are so many similarities between Richard III's life and Richard Duke of York's life. It's extraordinary. And then in the middle, you've got George. I always think if you if you understand Richard's relationship with Edward, then you know that he did not do what he was accused of doing. 100%. Absolutely not. But that's for another future book. <laughs> Thank you so much, Annie, for coming and talking to us about Cecily. The book is available now. Matt, where can we get hold of the book? To be fair, everywhere I've been, I've seen it. So <laughs> we will make sure it is on the History Hack Bookshop as well. So that if you if you want to if you want to support Annie and support us, you can do that as well because it's 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 fabulous. It's keeping me up at night in a good way. In that I just do the one more chapter thing, and you get shouted at from you know the other side of the bed. Definitely don't do what I did and read it in a day because you will need wine. You will need wine after that. Thank you so much, Annie. This has been an absolute delight. And we can't wait to have you back on History Hack. Thank you so much. (laughs) Just a reminder for everyone that the book we've been charting about is Cecily by Annie Garthwaite. And you can get that at our very own bookshop. If you head to bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack, you'll be able to see Annie's book and all the books from our latest guests as well. So thank you so much for listening today and for your continued support of the podcast. Until next time. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.